Let's take our Bibles this morning and journey to Romans chapter 12. For those of you who are guests, we try to study one book at a time in a very detailed fashion in our morning and evening services on the Lord's Day. And we're into our a year and a half of our study of the book of Romans. We concluded the doctrinal portion, verses chapters 1 through 11. And we began a few short weeks ago the practical portion of this book in chapter 12. We have this wonderful, glorious gospel we've heard and received. We've been transformed by it. Now, how do we live it? How do we live it? And that's really what chapters 12 through the end of the book detail for us. And we're looking forward to journeying through the rest of this book together. If you ever want to catch up on what you've not been able to hear, possibly, if you desire to, you can go right to our church website. And uh, you can find these in audio or audiovisual uh, recordings uh, to bring yourself up to date, possibly in our study, if you, if you desire to. I, I always desire to be aware of the fact that part of worship is giving of the resources that are the Lord's that he's given to us to steward to give back to Great Commission purposes here at Grace Church of Mentor. You've heard uh, a plethora of Great Commission opportunities even in our service this morning. And my friends, uh, these efforts are uh, worth sacrificially giving towards. Amen? Whether they be Jerusalem, church planting, foreign missions, uh, we don't take up a formal offering by way of row to row with, a, with an offering plate at Grace Church of Mentor in a morning service, but we do take up an offering if you desire to give sacrificially to Great Commission efforts here uh, and joyfully do so. There's boxes in the fellowship hall in the hallway as you leave, and you're certainly welcome to do that uh, so that you may be a saint that worships with integrity. We, we really have multiple aspects of worship recorded for us in Scripture, and uh, giving sacrificially and joyfully is one of those, and we don't want to be remiss to not mention that part of worship, uh, which is essential. We've taken the book of Romans in the 12th chapter, and we've divided it into four simple sections, and I've kind of given you the idea or, or uh, in your mind's eye of, the, of a structure of a house. Uh, verses 1 and 2 would be the foundation of that house, and uh, verses 3 through 8 would be the first story, and we've entitled uh, that particular floor of this uh, house community. Community, and uh, the second story of this house, we uh, have entitled Compassion. Compassion, we've looked at verses 9 uh, to 16 here. We're going to be wrapping up uh, final details about this second story we call Compassion, and the next time we're together, we're going to get into verse 17 to the end of the chapter, which go, we're, we're just going to entitle commission. What, how does love display itself in our community among lost people and often in tenuous situations? How is love personified? How is it lived out uh, in the community of God through compassion as we've been describing and then uh, through our commission, our great commission responsibilities in verses 17 to the end of the chapter here in a few short weeks ahead. Uh, the last time we were together, 
When we were discussing compassion, uh, we have defined compassion in a number of different ways. First of all, uh, we said that this compassion is holy. It's holy. If we look at uh, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to that which is good. This is a holy love. We, saw, we found out and investigated in verse 10 that, that this love is very relational. It's, it's very relational. We're to be devoted to one another. And we discussed that in great detail. You can go back and review on your own time as your heart desires. We discussed the last time we were together that this love is very passionate. It's passionate in relationship to how it serves inside the local church and how it perseveres in this world as we wait the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and we passionately exist to serve and to persevere. And, and you can go back again and watch that uh, online as well. But this morning we want to move on to our fourth and final description of this love. It's holy, it's relational, it's passionate, and finally it's aware. It is a love that is aware of its surroundings in great detail. Always remember the intentional use of words. It's a love that is aware. Love is always intentional about its surroundings. So as we continue to go phrase by phrase through verses 13 to 16, I want to let you know that I want to be respectful of God's time, which is your time, and your time's God's time. I don't want to overbake these verses, but I don't want to uh, underbake them either. If I don't get through verses 13 to 16, I really hope that you come back uh, the next time and help us uh, listen as we finish these. But there's some precious detail here that I think all of us need to be reminded of the content of this detail. But it's such familiar wording to us. And oftentimes we have the tendency to skate very easily over wording that's familiar to us. And we don't practically land the theological, philosophical plane as we should to our lives individually. So I want to go very carefully through these phrases. And the language turns here, the verb form turns here to direct imperatives. So this is a love that's uh, really commandment-based in how it functions and it's awareness in the local body of believers. And everyone draw the circle around yourself this morning and you say, you know what, I, if I claim Christ and I'm enjoying this foundation that I have in verses 1 and 2, I'm, in, I'm enjoying the, the community that God's described for us and its nature and activity in verses 3 through 8. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a believer that loves. I'm going to love well. I'm going to love with holiness I'm going to love relationally as a disciple maker here at Grace Church, and I'm going to serve with passion and persevere with passion. How do I, how do I, how do I remain aware? Understand, Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, didn't start with awareness. He started with holiness and the way love is in the local church. It's critical for us to remember the flow here. But how do I individually, intentionally, Remain aware. How do I dot these I's and cross these T's, if you will, of the detail of a love that's aware? And 
We look here as we finish verse 13. It says here, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. We'll go on to where we hope to get this morning. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly and do not be wise in your own estimation. Let's go back to the last phrase here. Uh, Right before we turn to the direct imperatives, we'll finish with this final verbal of the aspect of uh, being aware, contributing to the needs of the saints. Could you imagine a world without welfare, hotels or restaurants? There are almost 650,000 restaurants in the United States. There are 38,000 hotels with over 5 million rooms available. So that's really one hotel per 8,300 people in our country. So we almost have enough hotels to house everybody if they don't have a house. Restaurants are pretty easily accessible, right? And now with Uber Eats, the restaurant is coming to your front door. Uh, We have access to a lot of necessary things, food, clothing, and shelter. We are a culture that's layered with so many good and necessary conveniences. But how in the world would our flock care for itself if welfare, hotels, and restaurants didn't exist? If our social security system collapsed and we truly had widows indeed, no living male child, no living children, no living progeny, no social security check, no pension check from their deceased spouse. How would the church function? Paul says here, this is one of the things that we need to be aware of, the church's responsibility to contribute. And this is a continual action. This is a a regular ongoing awareness contributing to the needs of the saints. Love that is holy, relational, and passionate is love that is personal because this love exists in a community that understands the measure of faith given to it personally, individually, and corporately. In practical terminology, love that is aware, like being described here, is intent on making sure that there is no one soul behind in a church that cares for itself properly. Souls don't easily slip through the cracks or become invisible among a flock of saints that love well. So how does the flock remain aware in relationship to the contributing of the needs of the saints? We've lost the lives of two police officers here, one in our own city and then one in greater Cleveland in the last month. It's more than impressive to see how our communities come together to contribute to the needs of the families involved in the death of these officers. Common graces can be quite an impressive thing, can it? Even people who don't know Christ because they're made in the image of God know how to care for themselves well and sometimes can even put Christians to shame in the way we care for one another. But 
we've seen this on a geographic level recently. And all of this help that we've seen in relationship to the death of these officers is typically periodic, and it comes at extraordinary times in the life of a community, and yet it's still special to watch and to be a part of it as we've tried to be as a church. But what Paul is discussing here is much more thorough than a sensational periodic opportunity to come together and to contribute to the needs of the saints of any family that's in an emergency situation. Love is conscientious. Regularly, the grammar tells us here daily, ongoing to the person. Not just periodically, but perpetually aware of where the needs are so that those needs can be addressed. I said, Pastor Tim, that sounds like it's going to take a lot of time. It sounds like we're going to have to set up our own in-house ministry and just call it contributing to the needs of the saints. And we're going to have to have a director of that. And, and we're going to have to have a vice president of that. And we're going to have to have a project coordinator for that. And we're going to have to have all these people. Because that sounds like a lot of time. Hang on. Because we don't have to do that. And we won't do that. Because as you continue to learn what it means to be a personal disciple maker, you become the individual that's aware of where the needs are so the church collectively can minister to them. You become the agency of love. Because you're aware, and the reason you're aware is because you really know the person you're shepherding more comprehensively than anyone else in the church. And you're going to know their need. You're going to be able to keep a pulse on them regularly. And then we communicate that need to the flock, and, and that particular flock is, part of the flock is ministered to very effectually. If community is functioning and she should she be developing herself into a, a greater Christ-likeness, we collectively will become more individually aware of the special daily needs of the saints. Literally, the grammar of this phrase says this. We enter, you, individually, enter into fellowship with the needs of the saints. You personally enter into fellowship with the needs of the saints. It's impossible for this pastor to do that with every saint in a church, whether your church has 100 people in it or 1,000. This verbal directive of love, of awareness, is not directly given to a shepherd. It's given to each saint. So each saint is regularly responsible to enter into, in a very intimate fashion, the detail of the needs of the saints. You've got to know. You've got to know. This is not a, a, an opportunity that's strictly recluse to someone with a special spiritual gifting. This is the, the divine opportunity of every saint as we personally relate with each other and know each other well. I know what those needs are. In my family, when all six of us are home, there's five other souls other than mine. And, I, and my responsibility is to shepherd them well. I try to do as best I can. I try to certainly win more battles than I lose. Okay? 
but behind each door where my children sleep, there's their soul. And, and my obligation, my opportunity is to be uniquely aware of the physical and material needs of that soul. And you love your children. Your desire is to not just take care of their needs, but lather them with their wants, too, if you can. And what Paul's saying here, inside the local church, as we develop this disciple-making reality, we become just as conscientious with the physical, material needs, needs, of the folks that we're individually shepherding and that we collectively oversee together. This is what love does. Love is holy, it's relational, it's passionate, and it's aware. It's aware individually of the needs of other people. This is not being intrinsically nosy as a Christian. This is a natural part of loving each other well. And then this environment, I will tell you this, in this intentional personal environment of love being aware, we find out who really has need and who really doesn't have need. There's been churches for years that have been built by its members out of thousands of dollars because of their own poor lack of oversight of what God's given them. Your poverty can be self-inflicted or you could be legitimately impoverished. Now, to a self-inflicted, impoverished person that comes to repentance of that sin of squandering those resources that the Lord's given them and turns and gets right and comes and says, I need help getting back on the right track, that's a person that you individually, we collectively can minister to incrementally along the way. And there are some people, and I believe this text is primarily speaking to them, there are some people who are just impoverished for any circumstance. It could be a single mom who lost her spouse in a military exercise. It can be a family whose dad lost a job and they've They've lived through all their savings and the Lord has not yet provided them with another job and, and they're down to not being able to make their house payment or buy food. It could be a mom who is diagnosed with a potentially terminal illness and all those discretionary funds and savings are, are taken up and co-pays and, and medical bills and, and all these different things that can happen. And we could go on with a, a hundred different scenarios on how someone can be truly impoverished. What Paul's saying here, in a church that loves well, there's not going to be any scenario that's going to go unnoticed if we love well, the sad reality could be is there could be truly, genuinely impoverished people here and nobody knows about it well because we're not relating well. That would break God's heart. That would break our hearts, right? To know that there was a genuine need here and the need was not cared for because we were unaware. But in a disciple-making environment, no soul left behind, all of us should be aware of at least someone's need if they have it. Does that make sense? Yes. 
Obviously, this was the heartbeat of the apostles in the early days of the church in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. It was still on the heart of the apostle John in, in the AD, early 90s, maybe 95 as he wrote his first letter. In 1 John 3, 17, if, if you are aware of a need of a brother and it's within your capability to care for that need and you don't do it, then what? You're kind of worse than an unbeliever. But how in the world do you know of a need to take care of if you don't know people? You're not shepherding people. You're not relational with people. It's a, it's a tremendous honor for me to have many of you now. This never used to be the case here at Grace Church, or rarely the case. I don't want to be terminal with my language there. Rarely the case at Grace Church where we had many people coming to us as pastors saying, I'm shepherding so-and-so, pastor, and they're growing well, but they have a genuine need. I've done what I can to fulfill that need, but I can't fulfill all of it, so do you think the church can rally around this soul to help? It's an honor. It's an honor to have those disciple-making people come to us because we know the depth of that discernment, that analogy, and the, and, and, and the, the decision to come and actually cry out for help. They're, they're, they're being aware of the need. And my friends, I'm telling you, and I don't want to be condescending when I say this, that's a whole lot more effectual than a church just setting up a soup kitchen for its people. It's a whole lot more effectual, and I use that word intentionally, effectual, to the detail and substance behind it. When we can personally be aware, acutely aware of the needs of our people who are genuinely impoverished in a disciple-making culture, regularly contributing to the needs of the saints, entering into fellowship, entering into a commonality with the needs of the saints. In other words, if you are discipling someone and they have a material or physical need that they can't fulfill and you can do a part but can't exhaust, it's, it's almost like you're saying, if that's your need, that's my need. If you have it, I have it. If you're impoverished, I'm impoverished. I'm going to partner with you. I'm going to practically try to get this thing taken care of. Why? Because this is what love does. This is what a holy, relational, passionate, aware love does. So the truth embedded in this tightly packed list of opportunities teaches us that we should guard against being so preoccupied with our own needs that we are unaware of the individual need someone may have in the flock if we're going to be an intentional disciple maker. So I'm going to stop real quickly. I'm going to ask one question before we move on to the final verbal here before we get into the imperatives. Just going to stop. I do this from time to time. Again, I'm going to ask you to draw the circle around yourself. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you today, don't raise your hand, investigate your own soul. How many of you today shepherd someone so intimately 
that you would even know if they had a need. Again, the verbal here is given to all saints, not just the pastors, not just the leaders. Every saint is to be aware of somebody else's need if they have one. So we may not be there yet. You might not be able to answer that affirmatively. You might not have a face and a name in your mind as I ask that question. But all I'm asking you to do is, as we all grow in grace and enter into these disciple-making intentional relationships, ask the Lord to be involved in one if you haven't yet. There's about 35% of our flock that's not. Ask the Lord to be involved with one so that you can minister in this household of faith with the proper detailed compassion that the Lord asks us to minister. You at least have to know, don't you? Okay. What does it say next? The end of verse 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. It literally says here, pursue strangers. As a matter of fact, this particular root word of the word pursue here is used in other parts of the New Testament to describe someone being pursued to be persecuted. <laughs> so we're not pursuing people, strangers, to persecute them. What are we saying here? The analogy is here, just as hotly as someone would be pursued in persecution, we are to hotly pursue entertaining strangers. Entertaining people that we are unfamiliar with. And while the Bible does describe these strangers as being possibly missionaries who come and visit, or people in your community that you may not, be, that you may not know well, the primary emphasis here in Romans 12 is local church. Right, This is Paul writing to Rome. Rome is to be aware, love is to be aware in its own midst of strangers who may need encouragement. Now I'm going to do something real quickly here. How many of you don't know somebody within arm's reach of you? Raise your hand. Get them up high and hold them up high. Look around. How many of you don't know someone within arm's reach of you. All right, you put your hands down. Primary application number one. Many of you are doing this with your disciplees and disciplers, and praise God for that. We are to hotly pursue entertaining strangers. Passionately, hotly pursue this is what a holy, relational, passionate love does. Remember, it's aware. It's aware of the strangers in their lives, in their proximity, inside the local church, in their community, those who are gospel servants, outside the local church, church planters, the Wesses this last week, the Huffstetlers this week. We are to hotly pursue their care, their encouragement. This is what love does. But it doesn't start with the uttermost and doesn't go then to Judea and Samaria. It starts right in Jerusalem. We're not going to care well for strangers if we're not abroad, if we're not doing first right here this morning. 
How many of you were advanced significantly in your life by someone early in your Christian experience who either had you in their home or took you out for a meal or two and just invested in you? Would you raise your hand? Now, everyone just look around. I know it's going to be uncomfortable. Look around. Keep your hands up real high. This is a testimony to this text. Keep your hands up real high. I want everyone to see. Well over half the congregation here this morning. That's what this means. It's got to start right here. And then we will more naturally do it as we've already explained in our region and then gospel friends and that are most parts pursue strangers. One author points out that the word used here for practicing or pursuing, as we've already stated, has its root for the word persecute. In other words, with the same passion, as we've already said, as one would have chased you to hurt you, antithetically, we chase down the opportunity to entertain folks in our homes or over a meal we don't know well for their spiritual encouragement. We certainly saw this in the life of Abraham, didn't we? The author of Hebrews highlights the opportunity, chapter 13, of potentially entertaining strangers unawares. John mentions this, as we've already stated, for the sake of his name, strangers are brought in and encouraged and sent back out. But it all has to start right here in our own local church first. I want to be clear, right? It's like Spurgeon said, we want to be so clear to be merely understood. We want to be so clear not to be misunderstood. It says here, pursue hospitality. But we also know that the the particular gift of hospitality exists in the New Testament. But notice here, the verbal, the final verbal of verse 13 is telling us this. You don't have to have the gift to practice this. My mom and dad, I think one of their most primary gifts was hospitality. My parents were, for those of you that have a history here at Grace Church, I, to this day, there's a lot of people here that have the gift of hospitality. Maybe I just think they had the highest degree of that gift because I lived with it and saw it for so many years, I don't know. But they had a tremendous ability to have people they did not know well out to dinner, pay for their meal, spend time with them, or in their home. My parents had the gift of hospitality. They were specialists at it. But the truth is, a lot of people in local churches would look at people like my parents and some of you that have that gift and say, I could never do it like they do it, so I'm just going to what? Just not going to do it. But this verbal changes that, doesn't it? It compels every single one of us to come outside our comfort zones, if you will, and to do something for spiritually reproductive purposes. And it may be someone seated with arms reach of you this morning. Remember our testimony in our baptism two weeks ago? What did Pam say? I thank the Lord for Mrs. Mavar, who on a sunny morning when she didn't know me, asked me to sit with her 
even though I was radically uncomfortable. And that stranger was actually unredeemed at the time, but came to know Christ because of that. And a few short months later, after entering into a discipleship relationship, she's in the baptism tank. And now we have Pam seeking to do what? Hotly pursue strangers. We move on into the imperatives as we wrap up this morning. You know, folks, I, I think I've told you before, one of our Maturity Matters folks came up to me not long ago. She's here this morning. I'm not going to mention her name to embarrass her. She said, you know, Pastor, the larger our church gets, the smaller it feels. And I just want to commend you. I, through the disciple-making realities in many of your lives, size is insignificant. It's irrelevant anymore. Because what's most important is how you minister to each other and shepherd each other in the word and grow each other in Christ's likeness. And we're just glad when new souls, new babes are added to the, to the work of God at a local level, right? We just get excited about that. But one of the reasons why a growing church can seem smaller is because we're loving in this very aware way. We're personally giving intentional attention in a detailed way to these things. And we're so thankful for that. I, maybe some of you in the, I think it was the 80s, maybe it was the late 70s, were used to a particular family show that came on every Thursday night at 8 o'clock called The Waltons. Do you remember The Waltons? Yes. For the, how many of you young people have never heard of The Waltons? Would you raise your hand? All right, get on Netflix, get on the internet, pull up the Waltons, and watch a few episodes and find out what life's really supposed to be like, right? Right? A few days before all the garbage came to TV, anyway. How did they end their nights? You remember? The outside of the house, every show ended this way. Lights off, beautiful country white home, large family and after the lights are off and you can hear the crickets cheeping, chirping and then the moon shining down on the house, you would hear someone say, good night, mama. Good night, papa. Another person, good night, John boy. Another person, good night, Mary Ellen. Another person saying, good night, Elizabeth. It was a big family in a sizable house. They had their struggles, they had their victories, but no one was going to slip through the cracks in that family that intentionally loved each other well. And so it should be here. No, I'm not asking you to text someone at midnight saying, good night, Sue. <laughs> right? I'm not asking you to DM somebody at 1 a.m. saying, I got home from late work, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you good night. You guys understand that's not what I'm saying. But it ought to be that easy. Caring for each other, pursuing each other by way of fulfilling needs or practicing hospitality ought to be that comfortable. We're a family. We're a family. And love is aware like this. Love is aware like that. Okay. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples by how you what? 
Worship is not designed for the unredeemed. Only believers can worship. You know that. But when unbelievers come into the company of God's people, whether a worship service or a picnic at the Potter's or a young married's picnic tonight or a life in the middle picnic a couple weeks ago or a college and career fellowship, when unbelievers come into that mix and they see love intentionally serving that way, what does that tell them? The love, the world loves to share that kind of love. Remember we said earlier, periodically and sensationally. But this is what we do daily, hourly. They'll see a community of faith that has the closest bond that it could possibly have, and they'll say, this is not in the world anywhere that I know of. What is this? And you get to tell them who brought it about. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.